I think um, I've, I've prayed that the Lord would bless this sermon to you this morning. I pray indeed it would be blessed. Uh, we've had uh, an embarrassment of riches this morning, good things that we're celebrating. Uh, and so there's, uh, I'm always delighted to make time for those. And so with that, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. We are in the middle, more or less, uh, of our series on the book of Ephesians. And you can find our passage, today's passage for the sermon, on page 1161 if you're using the Bible in your pew. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're starting at verse 17, we're going to go to verse 24. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul, spoken through the Holy Spirit. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. There is a theological concept I want all of you to be more familiar with. It is called the noetic effects of sin. N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic. Okay? It comes from the Greek word for mind, which that word makes two appearances in our text today. It basically means the noetic effect of sin is sin's impact on your mind, sin's effect on your mind. Basically, it means that sin is not only messed up the way you act, but the way you think as well. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. When he says, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So sin not only affects what we do, how we act, or how we talk, it affects how we think, and stay with me, how we think about how we think. The Greek word for mind is not just the brain, but is also uh, the, I mean, obviously it's the thoughts, but it's also the beliefs and the emotions, okay? And so when Paul talks about, say, the renewing of your minds in Romans 12, and here in our text this morning... He doesn't mean just the way you think, you know, the renewing of your mind. That's not just the way you think. It's also the the way you think about the way you think and the way you feel and the sort of internal conversation that goes on within your own soul during the day. And sin has affected all of it. At the very least, it's made it untrustworthy. The way you think is often affected by sin. The way you feel is often affected by sin. Sin has a way of twisting things so that you don't even know when you're thinking wrong or feeling wrong. Feeling wrong. Can your feelings be wrong? Yeah, they can. 
What we're going to see this morning, I want to show you at least three things from this text. Number one, we don't know that we don't know. Number two, to know Christ is to know. And number three, to know Christ is to die and to live forever. So we don't know that we don't know. Let's start there. Paul's assertion at the beginning of our text this morning is that the way the Gentiles live is, he's got all these adjectives, right? Worthless, lonely, ignorant, imprisoning, numbing, demands total surrender. This, this way that they live demands slavish surrender. We're going to talk more about that. Now, you might remember at the start of chapter 4, way back in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins urging his readers to walk in a particular way. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay? And now he says, verse 17, that's the start of our text this morning, Now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Right? Thinking became futile, futility of the mind. Same language from Romans 1. So there's a you must walk and a you must no longer walk. His caution specifically has to do with walking in the way Gentiles do. Now that's sort of funny because his audience is Gentiles. You remember back in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So you Gentiles don't be Gentiles. You can see Gentiles kind of has a double meaning here. There are Gentiles, non-Jews, and there are Gentiles, unbelievers. There's a sense in which they're Gentiles, and there's a sense in which they're not. They've, they've left that whole identity, if you will, behind. So what is it they left behind exactly? This is very important. They've, <laughs> they've left behind their minds. You might say they've lost their minds, but they left behind their minds. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Remember, that's, that's thoughts, that's internal, that's emotions, that's that whole package. And the word translated uh, futility here means useless, emptiness without purpose. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the way that makes their minds worthless. Now again, Mind is not just the brain, right? Um, it's, it's how you reason, how you talk, how you think, how you feel. Shapes all of your life then. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to not having enough information. No, due to their hardness of heart. Again, this sounds very much like Romans 1. Their minds are worthless. Their understanding is darkened. Actually, if you have a different translation, verse 18 might say their minds are darkened instead of understanding, but it's actually a different word uh, in Greek. Understanding is, I think, the better word. Paul is saying you must not be like the Gentiles because they don't know that they don't know. And they like it that way. He's not just saying that they're wrong about how they're living life. He is saying that. But he's also saying the way they're thinking about their life and feeling about their life is also wrong. He's not just saying they're engaging in sin. He's saying sin has messed with their heads, so to speak. It's as though their souls are under some sort of dark enchantment that separates them from God. Alienation is the word used. And this is tragic because sin, listen, 
Sin does not bring light. Sin does not bring enlightenment. It brings further and further darkness. Sin leads to more sin. Sin is like quicksand, right? I mean, once you start sinking and sinking and sinking, you started out thinking everything was fine, maybe when the sin was this big. thing is, sin grows fast like weeds. Sin is like starting a fire in an enclosed space while you're trying to read a book. And as the fire gets bigger, it makes more smoke you're trying to read. Not only is your vision getting worse and worse, the flames are getting bigger and bigger. And if something doesn't change, you won't just be blinded by smoke, you'll be destroyed by fire. Sin makes your thinking worthless. In other words, sin makes you dumb. Sin makes you stupid. It darkens your understanding. It twists your reasoning. Sin is not just isolated violations of God's law. It is pollution of the soul and pollution of the way you think and feel. We know sin has a, um, a guilt effect, a shame effect. That's, that's true. What Paul is talking about here, though, is that it also has a numbing effect, a, a deadening effect, a lowering your sensitivity effect, searing, quieting, silencing the conscience. It creates distance between you and God. Sin makes you better at sin. And worse at rightly understanding reality. The the reality of the world around you. Physical and spiritual. The reality of what your own sin is doing to you. And it hardens your heart. Look at verse 19. They have become callous. You know what a callous is? It's, a, it's when, the, uh, when, when, it sh- when it shows up on your skin, you, you've deadened some of the, the nerves, so to speak, and it, it's, it's not going to hurt as much, right? Uh, you guitar players especially know what I mean. You have to build up calluses so that it, you're not in pain every time you're playing the guitar. But Paul says that these Gentiles have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says the Gentiles have surrendered themselves to sensuality. That is, a life driven by the next good feeling. The next sensory sensation experience. The next high. The next drunken stupor. And he says they're greedy for a variety of impurities. It's not enough to isolate themselves to one sin. They need a sin buffet, right? And this is the thing about sins. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that when sin is addressed, it's usually a list, right? There's, you know, there's like idolatry and also covetousness and also fornication and also uh, uh, thieving, you know, especially in Paul. When he starts talking about sin, he starts making lists. You know why? Because sins are like grapes. They come in bunches, right? And so... They are greedy for a variety of impurities. Sin is a bit like well, it's a bit like an addictive drug, right? Over time, you need greater variety, greater intensity. Otherwise, you get bored. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this perfectly in one of the most famous lines from the Screwtape Letters. He says that sin creates an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure, right? And the real seduction of this 
Is when we pursue pleasure at this speed, sinful pleasure at this speed and at this passion, we do it because we think we really will find rest. Or at least our anxiety, fear, terror, discomfort, uh, uh, restlessness will be muted a bit. We will find peace. Maybe find an identity. Maybe find happiness. Maybe finally uncover the secret we're searching for. And how does Paul respond to that? After this diagnosis of what sin does to you. How it messes up your thinking. Messes up your thinking about your thinking. Poisons your soul. Hardens your heart. The room is filling with smoke. You can't see straight. Much less read and learn and find out what you're looking for. Paul says, look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. This is our second point. To know Christ is to know. Right? So we don't know that we don't know, but to know Christ is to know. Now that language probably seems kind of odd. Uh, but, but that is not the way you learn Christ. I would have expected Paul to say, but that is not what Christ does to you. Right? He's just described what sin does to you. Messes up your thinking, hardens your heart. You think you're finding light, but really you're just being driven further and further into darkness, further into dumb, further into stupid, further into spiritual coldness and numbness. And then I would have expected Paul to say, but that is not what Christ does. But that's not what he says. He says, that is not how you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about Him and were taught in Him. So there's the learned, you, you were taught as the truth is in Jesus. What this reveals, I think, is that the endless, worthless, deadening, soul-deadening, numbing pursuit of sin that we get locked into because we foolishly think we are on our way to getting what our souls really want, that's a temptation as old as the garden. Right? The serpent tempted Adam and Eve by saying, God's keeping the good stuff from you. If you really want true knowledge of what your life is for and true peace, right? you'll know all you need to know. You have to disregard what God has said. And Paul says, if you chase that invitation to the true knowledge, you know what you will find. <laughs> you'll find it's a lie. And you know what you will never find, never discover, never know. You will never know Jesus Christ. That is not how you learn Christ. Because Christ comes to you in the words of a gospel. Assuming you've heard about Him. Assuming you've been taught in the truth. In Christ who is the truth. The truth of the whole worth of your life. The truth that you were made to know. The truth that your soul actually hungers for whenever it is hungering. It is in Jesus. It is so easy for us to think of Christianity as merely a set of doctrines or a set of commands. Now, I mean... True enough, if you remove the doctrine and remove all the commands, you don't have Christianity. But most fundamentally, that is not what Christianity is. Most fundamentally, Christianity is a person. It is a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He is God wrapped in human flesh, if you have the courage to dare to imagine that. This enfleshed God came into a world of people 
hopelessly addicted to their sin and going into deeper and deeper darkness, stupefied by their sin, not knowing that they don't know, drowning in a deeper darkness every day, thinking they're getting wiser while in reality they're continuing to sink. And heaven's piercing, cleansing, awakening light is a naked, bleeding man hanging on a cross who three days later walks out of a tomb with forgiveness on his lips, ready to create an army of clean men and women who have been pulled out of the darkness and are walking after him in the daylight. Sin traps you. It enslaves you. The fire in the room creates more and more smoke. You get more and more blind. Your heart is more and more numbed, deadened, made cold. And Satan's favorite lie in that moment is there is no way out. This is just your life now. There is no way out. People wouldn't understand. Your sin is so special. Christ says... That is your life. It really is that bad. It really is that covered in darkness. Your soul is really growing in that kind of numbness, descending deeper and deeper down. Okay, that is what you are. Are you ready to die? Because I will take that old life into my tomb and it will die. And then you will live. You will walk out with me Clean. Clean. And that's the third point. To know Christ is to die and to live forever. Paul describes the enslaving, mind-corrupting, heart-numbing, soul-numbing power of sin. He says, but that's not how you learn Christ. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. So he summons them all to a pattern of death and resurrection for the rest of their lives. Look at... um, Look at what this truth in Jesus calls us to. It calls us to, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Okay, the verb there for put off, it's the same word for changing clothes. Okay? Take off the old man like you're taking off old filthy laundry, the old self you used to be. That's not who you are. That's the former manner of life, corrupted through deceitful desires. You know what that means? That means desires that lie. Wants and impulses that lie. Lusts that lie. They promise you that once you obey the sinful lust, then you will have peace then you will get what you really want or be what you really want. Then you will have the life you really want. Then you will be righteous and holy. Now, that probably threw some of you that I used those words. Righteousness and holiness. We tend to think of those terms as synonymous with perfection. And there's good reason for that. There's certainly overlap in that that word usage. But but look, here's why... Perfection talk is sometimes unhelpful because even unbelievers know nobody's perfect, right? That's not news. Oftentimes in counseling, I'll ask counselees if they have sin to confess while we're talking. And, and sometimes they'll start with, oh, well, uh, well, pastor, you know I'm not perfect. 
To which I often say, really? Wow, I'm glad we got that cleared up. Okay? No, we all know we're not perfect. But we all chase righteousness and holiness. And we'll do just about anything to believe that we're righteous and holy. I'm not perfect. Okay, fine. You still want to be righteous and holy. Because here's what I mean. Righteousness literally means rightness. To be made right. And not, not really, don't think about it so much as like right in an argument, but right as invulnerable to shame and guilt and punishment. Okay? So I, I'm in the right. right. So you can't shame me, you can't guilt me, you can't punish me, because I'm in the right. That's righteousness. And do we not want that? Right? Our whole modern sexual revolution is about numbing and deadening shame in the soul. Don't you tell me what I want is shameful. I'm not covered in shame. By pursuing what I want, I'm being righteous. And Paul says, no, you're being made numb. That's not the same thing. We don't just long to be righteous, we long to be holy. And again, don't, when I say holy, don't for a moment, don't think so much about that aspect of like perfection. To be holy means to be set apart. To put it in a really oversimplified, almost crass way, By the way, I forgot to pray for Neil Barham. Uh, Lord, Neil is ill today. Please heal him and strengthen him in your kindness. Amen. And the reason why it occurred, because Neil, if he were here, would probably get really irritated at what I'm about to say. It's kind of a a, a sloppy generalization. Sorry, Neil. Um, To be holy means to be set apart. So to put that in an oversimplified, almost crass way, think of being holy as just being special noticed, set apart, distinct, but set apart with a purpose. And when you think about it that way, you realize we all want to be righteous, and we all, uh, so, so yes, we all want to be righteous. We all want to be cleared of guilt, shame, punishment, and we all want to be holy, distinct, with a purpose, noticed, set apart. And we all chase after that desire <laughs> Because we're made in the image of a God who is holy and who is righteous. Who is perfectly right, perfectly at peace within Himself, in perfect glad fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, is unfathomably holy, unique, set apart, distinct. And the deceitful desires of sin, the desires that lie, will say, You can find your light, your peace, your security with yourself, within yourself. You can find your rest, your righteousness, your holiness by descending more deeply into your lusts and impulses. It's a lie. It's not how you learn the truth. It's not how you learn Jesus Christ. You see, because the truth has a name. It is a name that is above every other name. And those deceitful desires are not how you learn the Lord Jesus. And the reality is that even after you come to Him, you will still be tempted by the siren song of deceitful, lying desires. That is why Paul tells, as it were, a room full of Christians to put off your old self. To forget who you used to be. Because Jesus has. He's saying, go ahead and bury that old sinful identity, because Jesus has. 
Because you cannot be a Christian and also own an identity soaked in mind-numbing, heart-hardening sin. So put off your old self. Leave your old self behind. Let it be put off like a set of uh, dirty clothes. Right? Let it be like, <clears throat> like dirt washed away in the water of your baptism. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember, we started back in verse 17. Your mind is always moving somewhere. That's what I want you to get from this. What I mean, your mind is either being driven further and further into confusion, darkness, numbness, or your mind is being renewed. It's being washed. It's, that's the thing about our minds. They're, they're always being shaped by something. Right? By music, movies, books, laws, news programs, social media, scripture, sermons, catechisms, so on. Your mind's always being shaped by something. There's no neutrality here. Every day, your mind, can you go to the next one for me, please? Every day, your mind is being made further new or further numb. Every day, your mind is being made further new. Or further numb. And so we are called to put off the old self. And to put on, verse 24, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We all want to be righteous. Clean. Cleared of guilt. At peace with ourselves and with each other. We all want to be holy, set apart, given a purpose, distinct from the mass. And Paul says the new self we're given by Christ and in Christ, this new self that we put on by faith makes us truly righteous and truly holy. True righteousness and holiness. It puts us at rest because it makes us into what we were designed to be. This is total identity replacement, not identity, identity addition. The new self is the replacement. It's not two selves set up side by side and you have to, you know, you get to keep and be both of them. When the new comes, the old must go. We are created after the likeness of God and the image of God. In other words, this new created self is created by God to be like Him. We are made holy and righteous, not because we are worthy for heaven's sakes, but because God is gracious. This is the core message of Christianity, right? That we have Christ. We are in Christ. And so we get every bit of His righteousness. Every bit of His rightness. Every bit of His guilt-freeness. Every bit of His shame-freeness. Every bit of His holiness. His distinctness. His set-apartness. Because the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm going to make time. I'm just going to conclude. I have two questions that I think might come up in the course of this sermon. Some of you might be asking. I just want to address them, and then we'll, then we'll be done. Question one is, what about me? What I mean is, let's say you've been a Christian your whole life, okay? And so this old self, new self language kind of trips you up. Okay? Because your, your old self story is not as obvious, right? Like, I mean, Paul is talking to these Gentile Christians. Every adult in that room is a convert out of paganism in their upbringing, right? And so, so no doubt when Paul says, put off your old self, they know what old self looks like. Old self has a history and maybe yeah, years of it, right? If not decades. But 
But today, today, God has been good to keep His promises to us and to our children. And, and some of you, you've, just, you've been Christians for as long as you know. Yeah, amen. You don't have a real distinct like putting off and putting on day. So what are you supposed to do with texts like this? Okay, Just two things about that briefly. First, you have been rescued. Never forget that. It's not that everybody else has been rescued from the swirling sea of sin and death and you just started out with both feet firmly on the boat. Okay? You might not have a high drama testimony, but you have been rescued from the old man, the old self. Now, do you know how I know that? Do you know how I know that? Because you still get glimpses of the old self every day. You don't know what he looks like? The mirror. (laughs) Every day you get glimpses of that old man and what you would be apart from Christ. This is why Paul gives the command to put off your old self. Don't miss that he's writing to Christians. He didn't say, since you've already put off the old self and don't have to worry about it anymore. He says, Christians put off the old self. But this putting off the old self is not something you do once, it's something you do daily because you get daily reminders of the person you could be apart from Christ whenever you sin. You didn't miss the chance to put off the old self. You're doing it every day. And second, if you still just struggle in general with like this sense of not having a high drama testimony, remember that God works over the course of generations. Okay, So, If that still bothers you, my encouragement to you is go looking through your family history. Ask your parents or grandparents what they remember up the family tree. Are there stories of sin? Stories of wickedness? Stories of futile, stupid thinking? Stories of alienation from God? And ignorance and hardness of heart and numbness of soul and greediness to practice every kind of impurity? That is not how you learned Christ. But the same blood flows in your veins, right? So put off the old self. God sees things from that vantage point. Give thanks instead to the God who breaks curses and cuts a new path for the new generations ahead. So that's question number two. Uh, Number one, sorry. Kind of, well, what about me if, if I've grown up in, in the church, more or less. Question two, can I do this? Right? Put it, putting off the old self. Because it's, 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 it's a command, right? Put off the old self, Paul says. Put off your old self. Sounds like a work. Yeah? That's because it is. <laughs> it's a good work, right? So do it. But I thought we couldn't do anything. No, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can't do any of this. But, verse 21, assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self. Get up in the morning. Get a good sense of those deceitful, lying desires that tempt you and say to yourself, that lying, fool, idiot version of me, he's going down today. And why is he going down? Look at verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The old self is being removed Because the new self, the new mind, the new way of thinking, feeling, talking, 
is being renewed. You are not renewing yourself. You are being renewed. So is it you? Yes. And no. Is it Christ? Yes. And yes. So come to Jesus Christ. It will cost you. He will take everything from you that you thought you were. He will make you into all that you were meant to be. Created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness. In true holiness. And that self will be renewed by Him. Not by you. By Him. Every day. Until the last day when it will live forever. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so our Father, fit us for this. Make us ready. Give us hearts to receive it. Hearts to trust in you. To trust in your words, your promises. Indeed, as we stand on them, Lord, give us strength here at your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.